Welcome to Grain Talk, a podcast by Grain Farmers of Ontario. This is Megan McKimmy. And I'm Rachel Telford. Here are your grain headlines for January 18th. Uh, So we recently uh, just heard from Health Canada and the PMRA, uh, and they looked at uh, the reevaluation of glyphosate from 2017. um, And they just recently found that uh, glyphosate, after a thorough review, poses no risk to human health. Um, So this was done because after the 2017 re-evaluation, they had some notices of objection and they heard public health concerns. Um, So they went back in and did a thorough scientific review using um, scientists that were not involved in the first study. Um, And they regularly do this anyways, uh, just to make sure that pesticides are meeting all modern health and safety standards. And some of their key findings are that they found that no pesticide regulatory agency in the world finds glyphosate a risk to human health. Um, They found that glyphosate is not a risk to human health, including cancer concerns, and they also found that it does not cause any significant environmental risks, including uh, levels of glyphosate in water, impact on monarch butterflies and milkweed, or uh, any soil health. Um, So this is a a good step forward for farmers, and the public can be assured that uh, this has been looked at. And as part of that review with the environmental concerns that were raised, it was determined that farmers don't need to change what they're doing in terms of how they're using glyphosate on their farms. But what farmers will have to change is if they have a drone, they're going to need to uh, follow some new regulations. Minister Garneau recently unveiled Canada's new drone safety regulations. And as of June 1st, 2019, Everyone who has a drone and operates a drone, whether that is for fun, for work, or for research purposes, you're going to need to register your drone and make sure you mark your drone with that registration number. You're also going to need to pass an online exam and get a pilot certificate for either basic or advanced operations. And you're going to have to stay below an altitude of 122 meters, which is about 400 feet uh, above ground level. And obviously you need to stay away from air traffic because they don't want anybody flying their drones into airplanes because that would just be be horrible. (laughs) Um, But this this was designed to make it sort of simpler and easier for people that wanted to use a drone. Um, So you're not going to have to get a special flight operations certificate um, unless you want to fly your drone outside of these basic rules that are in place. Um, So hopefully that'll make it a bit easier for people who want to use drones on their farm, uh, either to get images or use for research purposes. So this week, the registration for the 2019 March Classic also went live, so you can sign up for that now. And the March Classic is uh, our Green Farmers of Ontario annual conference, and we normally expect around 700 attendees, and we also have about 70 exhibitors in this exhibit hall. Um, So we're really excited this year. We have uh, Rick Mercer that's going to be presenting to us as our keynote speaker. Um, We'll also have uh, Peter McKay, and he's the former Minister of Foreign Affairs, uh, National Defense, and uh, Minister of Justice, and the Attorney General. So that'll be an interesting talk. As well, we have Jennifer Moss and some representatives from Griffith Foods. So if you would like to register, uh, pre-register for that, you can visit gfo.ca now. One other thing to check out while you're at gfo.ca is the results from our annual district meetings. Those wrapped up this week. Um, We did get two new directors uh, elected at those district meetings. So in District 3, which is Lambton, Emery Huska is the new director. And in District 9, Perth, Josh Borson is the new director. And so they're replacing Dave Park and... uh, 
Mark Brock, who have decided to retire from the board this year. So we thank uh, Dave and Mark for their service as directors over the past couple of years, and we look forward to working with these uh, new directors. You can see all the district meeting results, as I said, at gfo.ca. Um, and we're also going to be speaking with Barry Senth, our CEO, a bit later in the podcast about what people have been talking about at these district meetings over the past couple of weeks. And up next on the podcast, we'll talk uh, with Meg Reynolds, also known as Farmer Megs, about uh, speaking up for agriculture. <laughs> All right, so today on the podcast, we have Megs Reynolds, and uh, you're a policy advocate. Uh, You have a strong presence on social media, um, so we're really excited to have you here today. Can you just tell us a bit about your farm to start out? We are a grain farm in southwest Saskatchewan, and we will be seeding about 2,500 acres next spring. We grow mainly large green lentils, barley, durum, um, and flax or canola, depending on the year. And when you say we, who is we? We is my husband and our two little girls who are four and three. I think we've seen lots of awesome photos of them uh, on your Twitter. Uh, They look like they're good helpers around the farm too. Yes, they are very involved in the farm. So Megs, can you tell us a bit about how you became involved in the farm? Well, I can pretty much credit that to my husband because I was working in the Canadian film industry before I met him. So if our paths wouldn't have crossed, I don't know if I ever would have ended up as a green farmer in southwest Saskatchewan. And... So I know we were looking up a little bit about you online. Um, So did you work on different films? I know we saw something on the Twilight film. Can you tell us a bit more about what you used to do in the film industry? Not many farmers have an IMDb profile. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So I used to do set decoration and special effects. So with set decoration, that's basically um, if you walked into a house, it would be everything pretty much in that house, including the curtains, the stuff that's on the fridge, the pictures on the walls. But that also could be recreating a battlefield for a war movie or um, a camp, like a Western camp, if you're doing a, a old Western movie as well. So that varied a lot. Um, and with that side of things I was either a dresser what we call so someone who's moving um, the stuff around the set or I would be the on-set dresser so I would be there when we were filming to make sure that the set stayed the same Uh, continuity was important so I've spent all day before where we filmed with someone in a bed and I've had to make sure the pillows are exactly the way they need to be between scenes so that when they edit there's no differences that you're going to pick up on camera Um, And then the other thing I did was special effects. So that was all the hands-on effects, the snow, the rain, the smoke, the fire, the explosions, lots of fun stuff. So is your house one of those like picture-perfect farmhouses with everything like in a magazine? Maybe one day, but right now with two little kids and three cats in the house, it's more of a disaster at most times. (laughs) And so how did you go from the film to the farm? Um, You mentioned your husband and and you kind of moved on to the farm with him. Um, What was that like for you going going from sort of like the glamour, I guess you could call it, but maybe not so glamorous film industry to the glamour of the farm? Well, it was uh, a little bit of a change. I mean, growing up, um, my grandpa, my uncle had a cattle ranch in southern Alberta, and I always wanted to end up on a farm at some point. I didn't expect it to be a grain farm in Saskatchewan. Um, So I I always wanted to end up here. Uh, When I first came out, um, I obviously knew there wasn't really any film work uh, for me to do around Kyle, Saskatchewan. So I got a job um, as an apprentice heavy-duty mechanic working at a local Aco dealership. 
because pretty much the only thing I knew about grain farming was that at some point everything is going to break down. So <laughs> I figured if I could learn how to fix stuff, then I could maybe be handy on the farm and, and try to save us some money on, on that side of things. So the transition wasn't wasn't too hard. I didn't miss kind of the city or the amenities from the city. I think for me the hardest part was trying to lean on some of my support systems and some of my really good friends that I, I had um, in all areas of my life that didn't understand some of the stuff and the stress and the struggles that I was going through with farming, which, you know, that's not on them at all. I didn't understand any of it before I came to the farm either. But I think for me, um, isolation in that sense was was the hardest. It wasn't actually the fact that I moved to a farm outside of town that has a smaller population than my graduating class in high school. So how did you kind of um, work through that? Did you get a new group sort of where you were or what were your strategies? Well, I have, like, I'm still really close friends to all my original friends, um, but I definitely have made friends out here. And um, for me, social media was a big one as well, connecting to other farmers and not necessarily in Canada, but other farmers that... um, I could talk to about stuff because they they got it or they've been there through through it before. And um, I know you. We were going to ask you about that. How did you first start out on? I guess social media. You've got a pretty big following now. So how did that all come about? Well, I was at a woman in egg conference. I think that was about three years ago, and they had a couple different presenters that were all along the theme of sharing your farm story and. Uh, how important it is to tell that story, especially now that we're watching um, some of the tools that we need on our farms be uh, jeopardized because of public fear, not actual science. So that kind of clicked with me, and I said, um, I need to start sharing my farm story and getting on social media because I had a lot of my own personal views um, and misconceptions around surrounding egg change when I came to the farm. And so I thought that I could be or try to be a good person to to have that conversation with. So what were some of those uh, things that you had before you came to the farm that you would say now you were totally wrong about? Well, I definitely was um, not for GMOs. I was uh, a little, I think, frightened would be the best way to put it. Um, You know, I kind of fell into that whole clickbait uh, through Facebook and what some of the people in my social network were sharing. I thought Monsanto was a bad company. So there's there's been a lot of things that have changed, you know, worrying about the chemicals that are on crops because I didn't understand what was being used, when it was being used, how it was being used, and why it was being used. Do you find that some of your old friends um, still don't uh, quite believe you when you tell them that these things are actually safe and explain how you use them? A hundred percent. It's actually something I still haven't quite figured out um, how to to work through because I have friends that I've had for 10 years that are going to believe that article on Facebook that says there is glyphosate in their oatmeal um, and not believe anything that I have to say on the topic and not trust anything that I have to say, even to the point where they don't trust Health Canada and the regulation um, or regulatory bodies that are supposed to be making sure all of this stuff is safe. So if anyone else has that figured out, I would love to, to know how to get past that challenge. So you've got about just under 20,000 Twitter followers now. Did you ever imagine that you would have that many people interested in what you have to say about life on the farm? No, I never set out to 
grow a following or to uh, collect uh, online friends. It was always about trying to have conversations and and to talk to basically the person that I used to be in and to do so in a way that I would have understood before I came to a farm. And I, I really like I've seen some of your stuff online where you are sort of explaining like I know one of your tweets just about like how a combine works and what's it's doing. And, and so do you think maybe a lot of it's just that like explaining what we do as agriculture and farmers and um, just doing more of that or it might be. Um you know, I, I post stuff like that, and obviously that's not for the farmers that follow me, other than I know some of my friends have joked that they watch my videos to make sure I know what I'm talking about. Um, but I think a lot of it uh, now is is in agriculture as well, because I have gotten to the policy side, and I have um, been trying to work on policy files, not in affiliation with a board or an organization, but on my own Um because I see the need for farmer engagement and to try to um, bring a stronger voice into being involved in, in these different files and, and how can we have more of a say in what's going on and how things are happening. Now, at the end of the summer, you invited uh, any politician that wanted to come out to your farm to come and have a look and experience what harvest was like with you. And did anybody take you up on that offer? Yes, I actually, Scott Moe, uh, the Premier of Saskatchewan, was the first. And I think... I should uh, give him a fair amount of credit for really kind of helping me get that message out there because he was the first who kind of reshared it and said, hey, I'm going to see you there. So I think that kind of was a challenge for other politicians to come out and, and go for a ride. And I actually had um, a colleague's office in contact with me, but unfortunately when he was in Saskatchewan, I was in the States for a farm show, so we weren't able to line up dates. So are you hoping to connect with him in the future, maybe for planting? Possibly. I haven't thought about... Uh, I don't think I could put an invite out for planting just because our tractor does not have a buddy seat and I don't know if anyone really wants to uh, come join me if they have to half sit on my lap. Um, <laughs> but uh, next harvest for sure, I would like to put that invitation out and, and to broaden it. Um, you know, I actually had a couple of researchers come out from Agri Food and Agriculture Canada and it was really cool to talk to them and then to have them talk to me and ask me questions and stuff as well. What sort of questions were they asking? Well, they, this was kind of their first time out in Saskatchewan. So, you know, even with crop farming, there's differences in how we do things out here compared to Ontario. And they've done a lot of work with the satellite images of the fields and what's being grown in the acres of different crops across Canada. And so they've had all these questions come up where they've looked at satellite images and said, why is there this uh, green spot in the middle of the field that is a different crop than the rest of the field? And you know, what are you guys doing out here? Or why did you combine this whole field, but you left a piece? And it's like, well, they were able to get into that uh, place that must have been a dried up slough after they seeded the rest of the crop. So they threw barley or something that was going to grow faster into that area and didn't match the rest of the crop. Or maybe there was an area that was too green, so they left it and they were going to come back after they had done other fields. And so it's kind of cool to have these conversations that you know, they've had these questions and they see what we're doing, but they didn't know why we were doing it. And it, just having them out here kind of provided the perfect platform to, to talk about it. I think that's fantastic. I know a lot of organizations are undertaking that sort of policy, trying to do it themselves. And I think for you as an individual farm to do it, that's um, that's really amazing. How did you first start, I guess, getting into the policy side? Well, we have a provincial grassroots organization called APAS, Agricultural Producers Association of Saskatchewan. And they are basically the producers advocacy group. Um, they deal with, there's different committees who create policy 
and then kind of bring it forward and bring it up to whether that's a provincial level or to the Canadian Federation of Agriculture, if it's a um, policy item that would be on the federal side of things. And I did a mentorship program with them last year. And so that kind of was my gateway into understanding the policy side of things and how I could get involved with it. Now, you mentioned earlier that um, in Saskatchewan, you, you see that some tools that are important on the farm are being taken away due to government regulations. So here in Ontario, we've had that battle with the, the neonic regulations. And um, in Ontario, now federally, they're looking at that. What for you in Saskatchewan would you say is that key tool that you find government's taking away? Well, it's, you know, neonics is being reviewed, so that's obviously going to affect um, us out here as well. Um, they're talking, Health Canada is saying that they're going to re-review the review they did in 2017 about glyphosate because of consumer um, outreach. So, um, you know, there's there's things like that, or at the end of the day, it's not just what's going on in my province or in our country. We export a lot of what we grow. So what's going on in all the other countries is also affecting what I get to do, how I get to do it, and those tools that I have on my farm. So do you find that you follow the news a lot more now in terms of policy and what's happening internationally? I do for sure, because there are so many things, whether it's, uh, you know, like the recent Huawei um, with Canada uh, detaining the CEO, like that has trade implications. There's there's so much that affects our ability to uh, do what we're doing, whether that's through trade or the tools we have, or maybe that's uh, rail not moving or the weather going on in different countries that's going to affect commodity prices. Everything is so linked together, and it's, it is really important to stay up on all of those different topics. And um, I know recently you've been doing um, some more work around the carbon tax. Can you tell us a bit about what you're doing there? Um, sure. I So I've been actually working with other farmers, and one of the things that I like to say to people is that I'm not an expert on any on everything, so I like to uh, make sure that I have people within my network that are really good at all the things that I, I don't know a lot about. And so I have a great connection, Fraser, in uh, Manitoba, and he's done a lot of work with carbon sequestration in the grain that we grow, not the soil, but the actual grain. And so I was using some of his information to have the conversation that agriculture isn't the problem in this conversation, that it's actually the solution. And I would like to see our current government factor that into their climate plan. You've also done a bit of calculations in terms of just as, you know, an average farmer in Saskatchewan, how much a carbon tax would cost you and, and how much of a hit that would be to your bottom line. Before you actually did those numbers, did you think it was that large of a number? I did not realize how big it was going to be until I was at... Um, uh, presentation that John Barlow gave and he basically that was the first time that I saw those numbers and they were off the parliamentary budget report and I kind of sat there a little bit shocked and went okay well <laughs> this is gonna you know hit farms pretty hard and and we need to get involved in this conversation. And in what ways have you been doing that uh, talking more about the carbon tax? Um, I've written an opinion piece for CBC. I made a video that went uh, a little crazy on social media I think it was last week and then I also was approached by CBC to interview on it and pose a question to McKenna, which was kind of the basis for that video that I put out last week as well. And then it's been just conversations online, um, just trying to have that conversation. And one of the other conversations that you've had as well is around mental health. And you mentioned a little bit earlier about how when you first moved to the farm, you had some feelings of isolation. Why is mental health, do you think, such um a topic that farmers don't really feel comfortable talking about. 
I think we still have that image of John Wayne or someone on a horse and they're just tough and uh, stoic and we kind of put that on ourselves that we need to be to be that person and you know we're we're farmers we're tough we deal with all sorts of stuff but we do, we shouldn't need to talk about it and you know and in, in society in general there's still a lot of stigma surrounding mental health and people not uh, knowing how to deal with it or how to deal with someone that is going through something but even just the stigma that we put on ourselves and not that keeps us from admitting that we have something going on that we need to seek help for um, so for me it's you know I think it's an extremely important conversation um, we're we are isolated we spend a lot of time by ourselves in fields and equipment all over the place um, we have a lot of stress a lot of things in our that contribute to that stress are out of our control and I think it's important that it's something that we're able to talk about and I I know um, I remember seeing that you went to I believe it was parliament to talk a bit more about mental health can you tell us about what you did uh, there so they, Agri-Foods and Agriculture Canada actually did a study on mental health in agriculture in Canada, which is great because there really hasn't been anything done in Canada. I think we're a little bit behind other countries in that respect. Um, there was a study done by Guelph University about the anxiety, depression, and stress levels in farmers and producers across Canada. But this is kind of the first study uh, on, a, on the government side of things. So they had different farmers and producers from across Canada come out and you basically had six minutes to give testimony and then um, there were MPs in that, um, it was like a round table set up and then they had questions that they asked. And um, what kind of stuff were you talking about yourself when you were there? Well, I talked about some of my own personal experiences, um, but then I also talked about the fact that I'm not the only farmer that's felt this way. I'm not the only farmer going through any of this. And um, that, you know, what's going on right now in agriculture needs to be taken seriously. And it's it's it's, it's not very healthy, and, it, and we need to address how to deal with that. And part of the problem, you know, this year it's been great, and more and more people are joining the conversation. We saw Do More Egg Launch, which is a foundation um, to support mental health in agriculture and to help end that stigma. But part of the problem is that, our healthcare systems, whether that's provincially um, or federally, they're so bogged down that when you do try to go into the system to get help, it's a very lengthy process and the wait times are huge. So I think it's been great to start the conversation, but now we need to figure out and work with government to make it better to get help and easier to get help and faster to get help once we identify a problem. And do you think that looking to the future and you have two daughters that mental health is going to be one of those issues that could affect uh, the decision for your children to stay on the farm given that it's a bit isolating and and a bit harder than some other careers? I actually just had a conversation with a friend the other night about this and it wasn't just about the choice to stay on the farm you know you I think you'd be hard to find a farmer who at some point by their parents wasn't told to leave to never come back when times were hard Um, but I think it's also the what are they exposed to growing up? Like you live where you work, you're always at work, you have all these conversations surrounding the business, the stress um, that maybe children shouldn't be exposed to. You're maybe reacting with your family and your relationships with your family are not the healthiest because of what you're going through personally. I think it's a really hard environment for children to be in and I think that affects how they grow up and whether they want to stay or not. So what do you hope for the future then with your children? I hope that they know that they're able to do whatever they want and feel supported to do that and I hope that the mental health piece isn't something 
we need to be talking about because it is treated the same as somebody breaking their arm. I think it's good that we're talking about this. I know a lot of organizations are starting to catch up a little bit at least um, and, and doing a lot more work on that piece. Um, and I know you've done some presentations around mental health. What sort of things are you talking about um, when you do some of those uh, talks to farmers? Well, it's been, a lot of it's been more in like a panel setup. So it's been talking about, uh, you know, personal experiences, uh, what resources out, are out there, um, what are different things they could do at home. Basically just trying to continue that conversation and then engage others um, that are there in that conversation as well. Uh, whether that means somebody stands up and shares a personal experience of what they're going through because they need the support of the people in the room or um, someone who maybe stands up and says, I've been where you are, I made it out on the other side, you're going to be okay. And um, you, you're you very involved in a lot of things. I think that's really amazing. But um, on the consumer outreach, whether it's policy or mental health, how would you, if you knew someone, a friend or another farmer that wanted to be more involved um, it's sometimes kind of intimidating. How would you tell them to go about taking those first steps? I think find what works for them and what they're comfortable with. Not everybody is going to be comfortable with the approach that I've taken or with, um, you know, posting pictures of their kids and, and stuff like that. I think a big part of it is being very aware of what your message or how your message comes across, um, even if you're just talking to people in agriculture. And we see this all the time, what I kind of call the egg bubble, but we're having a conversation with a friend who's a farmer. It's on a social media platform. It's a very, very public place. And yet we're talking in a way that if someone's viewing that conversation outside of agriculture, if that's Meg's that still lives in the city looking at that conversation, I don't get a great feeling about it. Maybe that's joking about the uh, come adrift burning sprayers down or, you know, that we do all these things, I think, without realizing that they're kind of sabotaging our industry. So my advice is to find the way that uh, works for you and that you're comfortable with to share your story, to be genuine, to be honest, to be open. You don't just need to talk about the good stuff because people want to connect to you. They want to find ways to connect to you because we use emotions in all of our decisions, and that's why some of these conversations are really challenging to have. But to be very aware about every single thing that you're putting out there and how that comes across to anyone who chooses to look at it and to also be respectful. I think sometimes we forget and it's easy to um, remove ourselves from a conversation that's happening online, but is that something you would want to say to your mom's face? That's kind of my go-to because there's a lot of stuff that's said, especially when those emotions and those conversations are a little bit heated, but we need to remember that there needs to be um, compassion involved in all of these conversations and that that is a real person on the other side of that form. When we talk about sharing emotions and some of the bad things that happen on the farm, uh, we asked permission to use one of your photos that you took of the combine on fire and that had to have been a scary thing. Why did you want to share that? Um, <laughs> well, it is part of the, <laughs> can be a part of farming. Um, I think that was, you know, I kind of went into social media saying that I wasn't, I was going to put stuff out there. I wasn't going to lie. And I was, I was going to share what farming to my family is. And sometimes that, you know, I hope we never have another combine burned down, but that, that was something that happened and that was something that we were going through. Um, sometimes that means that there's snow on the crop or maybe it's something good that I get to share, that something went really 
really awesome and you know maybe our crop yielded better than I thought it would but I just I want to be share our experience and and that means that there's going to be all sorts of different things that are talked about in that process. Um, and I know I saw on some of your posts a little while ago, there were some awesome photos of your kids in the cab with you. Um, and I think they were drawing on the glass and sort of having a bit of an educational piece. Um, and it's really cool that you, you have your family there and you're sort of full-time farming. How do you balance um, having a family and, and uh, being a farmer and doing all the other stuff you do? <laughs> Um, dry erase markers for anyone else with kids <laughs> that have them in equipment are the best thing ever. <laughs> um, I don't, I don't, I hate the word balance because I don't know if I have a balance. I don't know if we'll ever have a balance, but we've worked really hard over the past four years to come up with a system that works really great for us. And that works because we have a lot of family support. So my mom, um, comes out and helps with the kids for seeding and harvest. My mother-in-law does a lot of the cooking I'll make freezer meals and stuff to help before we get into the busy season but she'll usually throw the meal together um we have even within like me and my husband a system of he'll go he'll get up super early and get everything organized I'll get up with the kids get them ready get lunches made they'll go to my mom um and then I'll go to the field when I'm ready and they get brought out after lunch and hang out with me in the field for a while until supper time and at supper time we kind of all say goodbye and he's he'll be out spraying until 11 o'clock 12 o'clock at night and he goes home and switches my mom off and I'll see till two or three in the morning and then I go home and he goes back out the next morning so we've worked really hard to develop a system that works for us and all everyone's systems are going to be differently and it's it takes a whole lot of uh, family help but I wouldn't say that there's a huge amount of balance I think I just hope that there's enough people involved and know the plan that the important balls that need to stay in the air stay in the air and maybe the floor doesn't get washed in the house for a month but to me that's not that important so (laughs) (laughs) do you find that there's that perception that you're not a farmer that you're just the farmer's wife or do you ever find yourself sort of battling that stereotype I'd be lying if it said or I said it doesn't exist you know I'll, I'll go to grower meetings and stuff and maybe my husband's working that day and he can't go and I'm the only one that goes and there's jokes that get made like, oh, I thought you only handled the books or something. But I think for the most part now, everybody in the area knows how I'm involved. And I don't get as many of those jokes anymore. Um, but it's definitely that thought process exists in our industry for sure. Was that hard to break through that? Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> um, for me, I've been... Uh, pretty supported whether that was in you know the company hiring me to work as a heavy duty mechanic without a lot of experience or my husband supporting me to take the role on the farm that makes me the happiest but I know that some people don't have an easy time with getting through I think some of that stereotypes as I have had. I guess yeah being mechanic that's another sort of stereotypical male role um you mentioned that you sort of went into that because you thought that would make you useful on the farm but was there any other thing that kind of was like hey I can I can do this or why you wanted to do the mechanic? (laughs) Um I have a memory from I don't know I think I was about eight years old and I was standing in my aunt and uncle's farmhouse in southern Alberta and we were helping my aunt me my cousin who's a girl or a woman now and my sister and we were helping her make pies for a 4-H fundraiser and my uncle came in and one of his uh, farming friends 
And they came in for coffee, and the farmer kind of looked around the kitchen, paused for a moment, and said, oh, isn't this nice? All the women in the kitchen where they should be. And I have spent my entire life (laughs) pretty much uh, rebelling against that memory. I've always gone towards careers that um, are more male-dominated. I worked in a welding shop after high school. Um, Growing up, my parents, I think, did a very good job modeling that there are not gender roles. There were no gender roles in our house. Um, There were times when my dad did more of the cooking and cleaning than my mom. So for me, um, thinking that a a career or a a work choice is more dominated or more acceptable for men has never been uh, factored into my decision-making process, whether that's something that I should go towards or not. And for you, what is one of the, like, it's such a big life change, and I think it's really exciting what you're doing. What is one of the best parts about living in and raising your family on a farm? I think one of the things that I love the most is, um, and my mom would think this is crazy because I hated gardening growing up, but (laughs) is that we're able to grow and produce a lot of our own food. So we do a massive garden in the summer. Me and my mother work really hard or mother-in-law work really hard to um, preserve and process a lot of the extra produce so that we have it in the winter. We raise our own um, chickens and turkeys for meat. We do pigs when we need pigs. Um, We have some cattle as well. So we're pretty self-sufficient, and I take a lot of pride in that. Thanks for joining us today, Megs, on our podcast. That was a really good conversation. Well, thanks for having me. It was a really fun conversation to have. We are uh, joined today on the podcast by Barry Senth, our CEO, and for the last two weeks we've been in the midst of our district meetings that happen every year. Can you tell us a bit about what we've been discussing? I know for a lot of those meetings, Dawn has been uh, a significant conversation. So Yes, well, this year, because of the Dawn issue and how it affected some of our farmer members, we actually uh, had two agendas for the district, and board members would... Uh, uh, decided which agenda they uh, they wanted. One, the traditional agenda where we talk about the uh, the operations, uh, the report of what uh, GFO did on behalf of their members in this past year, and the other one was fully dedicated to the Dawn issue. So, uh, from my part, I've been mostly at the uh, at the Dawn meetings where we've had presentation by. Uh, by our chair, Marcus Hurl, uh, myself, uh, describing what we've done uh, from an organization's uh, perspective, and in AgriCorps, talking about um, uh, the crop insurance side of the issue, which has been very, very important to our farmer members, of course. So uh, uh, on the other side of the equation, uh, Crosby Devitt has been doing uh, most of the operations report, and I think, um, you know, it's... uh, uh, good questions about uh, how and why we do the things we're doing, and that's always uh, uh, that's always very positive to have uh, farmer members challenge the organization on the direction and the ways and means that it is doing uh, the things set out in the strat plan. But uh, but it's very positive. And uh, again, from the dawn meetings, uh, we've had above. Uh, average attendance to those meetings, which is very positive. Some really new faces that we hadn't seen over the past number of years. And just on the Dawn front, what has been sort of the update we've been sharing? I know that we had the conversation about the grain baggers before Christmas. Um, What have we been sort of highlighting at the meetings? Well, that they've been used in the three locations. Uh, I think we likely, uh, those bags are storing between 15,000 and 20,000 bushels. 
Uh, I think in total we got about 20 bags that are failed. I haven't got a report in a recent time. I think what I've been saying to the meetings, uh, that when I uh, speak of the issue, I think uh, uh, it was just too bad that we didn't have these bags in place a month earlier uh, than we in fact had it. it uh, when we finally got them in place, uh, harvest was starting to wind down. But I think, you know, one of the issues um, that we're hearing from the industry and our farmer members is that uh, uh, discounts are narrowing on the uh, Dawn-affected corn. And uh, that's because we're getting a little ways from harvest. And um, so people that have stored grain, uh, well, there's the challenge of knowing what exactly they have within their bins is uh, still of utmost of concern to our farmer members. The issue of holding on a little longer, which the bags were, uh, uh, what that was one of the original objectives, were to just hang on to your corn a little longer to those discounts uh, narrowing up. That's what's proving to be the case. So uh, from that perspective, we're pretty pleased about that. Would have liked to have a lot more, but it is what it is. On-farm storage is a conversation that I know happened at a meeting yesterday. And one farmer said is that his dad told him he should build multiple smaller storage bins, and he didn't. He went with bigger bins, and he regrets that now because he couldn't segregate his grain that was infected. So um, I guess that's one of the benefits of the grain baggers, too, is that there is that opportunity to segregate infected versus not infected corn. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when, when farmers are building uh, storage for corn because it's such a bulk item and big yields uh, uh, resulting uh, from our uh, improve you know, farming practices, traits, etc. Um, you know, it is nice to have that big bin or several big bins uh, because, you know, usually the corn is of uniform uh, quality. This is an exception to that year uh, where it would have been good to have those, um, that uh, segregation more available. Yes, the bags, you know, because I said, uh, you can you can have um, from 10,000 bushel to 20,000 bushel does provide another means of segregating some of that tougher corn that uh, farmers had to harvest this year. So yeah, you're absolutely right. It it provides segregation that you might not get if you got all large storage. All right. Well, thank you, Barry, for uh, our CEO update today on the podcast. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to our Grain Talk podcast. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. For more ways to connect with us, including the latest webinar, market report, and our e-newsletter, go to gfo.ca slash grain talk. A special thank you to our guests, Megs Reynolds and Barry Senf. Also, thanks to our producer, Mark Carter. Help us grow our Grain Talk podcast. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. If you're using iTunes, reviews and five-star ratings help us get in front of more listeners, so please leave one today.